welcome to PDBC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PDBC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on May 2, 2018, focusing on interaction of the international provisions in the recent tax reform legislation. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, a PDBC tax partner and our tax services leader, Mike Erse, a PDBC tax partner and leader of our international tax services practice, Sherry Grabo, a PDBC tax partner focusing on international tax issues, and Marco Fiacadori, a PDBC tax partner focusing on transfer pricing issues. This excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists, providing a general overview of the guilty provision and the interaction of that with the other new international provisions. Take a listen. Mike, I'm going to come to you with your, your slide that has all the, the uh, arrows flying around here. You want to try and unpack this for people? I will, Ken. Thank you. Um, this is actually uh, a high-level interaction slide. Um, what we learned very quickly after looking at tax reform was that you couldn't build these modules in a vacuum. Uh, you can't just simply do a guilty calculation. Uh, everything's interactive. Uh, what we tried to do on this slide is illustrate how many of the significant steps occur in order to get to an end calculation, which sort of centers in the middle. That's your U.S. tax return. That's got all your U.S. tax attributes like your OFL, ODL, SLLs, NOLs, foreign tax credit carry forwards. And importantly, it's also got all your expenses of your U.S. group. And if you don't have that information, you can't do the calculations that are required in these modules that were added by U.S. tax reform. So just to walk through this octopus slide, um, like first, you might import all your income into your U.S. return from both the toll charge and from FDII. Then number two, you're going to determine whether you apply earnings stripping limitations at the CFC level. That is an, un, an open question. We don't know yet whether we have to apply 163J. Uh, once you either do that or don't do that, step three is you're going to then move guilty income over to 163J because it's part of uh, your alternative taxable income for that calculation. And once you have that, step four, now you know how much interest expense you can deduct, which is also obviously important for your, um, your deduction, but it's really important for expense apportionment. And that is used in step five, along with R&D and stewardship and other expenses, to actually figure out your, your basketed income in both guilty and FDII um, so your net benefit that qualifies for the 13% rate for FDII and your net guilty amount. And then lastly, six, once you really know your guilty gross amounts and the expenses related to them, you can then push that back to your B calculation, which I think my panelists are going to cover, because guilty does affect B. So when you step back and you think about all these interactions, the difficulty is, is that we're getting new law changes, we're getting guidance, we're getting um, interpretations of, of what the technical rules are and how they should be applied. We've got clients who constantly are getting updated projections. And then on top of that, 
even if you've run your base case, you might run run, want to run three or four or five scenarios, which might involve an acquisition or a change in your business model. And when you start to think about the interactivity of these provisions and all the scenarios you want to run, it makes for extremely complicated calculations. So we'll, we'll get into it more. Yeah, and this is really a webcast I was looking forward to for this purpose. Um, I look and say, what we do got so incredibly complex from a quantitative standpoint. And a lot of people early on started to go through a calculation to figure out, well, this is going to be my guilty calculation. This is going to be my beat calculation. This is going to be my FDII. And the reality is there's so much, and we're going to talk about this, there's so much interactivity between all these pieces that you, you can't do that. It's, it's literally a Rubik's Cube to sort of piece it all together. And so I know that's what the panel here is going to try and pull apart. But, um, I mean, that, that's really the, the, the takeaway from all this when, when we get through the, the stuff today is you have to be in a position to run all these different things in a simultaneous fashion to try and understand what happens. Otherwise, you get very unexpected results sometimes. That's right. And so um, that's what we'll dig into. All right. So, Sherry, I'm going to come to you and maybe let's start with talking about guilty which is sort of the uh, global uh, taxation on uh, low-tax intangible income for those trying to unpack all that. But it's kind of like a minimum tax that we're talking about. So you want to maybe spend some time talking about that? Sure. And so our first slide starts with the foreign tax credit, which, as Mike illustrated, is really key to the interplay with all the provisions, but particularly important with guilty, you know, the foreign system live and well, and uh, even more complicated uh, than it was before. So with the tax law changes came two new uh, foreign tax credit baskets. So we have the branch basket, and then guilty is in its own basket. And so one of the things that taxpayers will have to do now is figure out their foreign tax credit calculations, going through identifying which income goes in which basket, and also, importantly, what expenses get allocated to those baskets. And so what this slide is intended to illustrate is kind of what, what your big picture looks like in terms of you've got the four new baskets, so you'll go through this exercise of, of allocating your income, identifying which goes in each basket. You have your U.S. source column on the left, and um, you'll walk through each of those calculations and now expenses that would have otherwise just been broken out between general and passive, now some need to get allocated to guilty. And it's an important point because at the end of the day, it definitely impacts the overall cost on guilty. What will happen as a result of that is there will be further limitations on utilization of credits and guilty. And what this example in particular illustrates, which is a pretty common fact scenario that we're seeing with our clients, is that because of this expense allocation, um, clients are ending up projecting excess credits, credits they can't use and which unfortunately under the new rules just expire if they're not used in the current year. So we end up with excess credits in the guilty basket, unused excess limitation in the general basket. So, you know, it is something that can be very impactful to the overall cost of guilty and, and I think maybe something that might not have been expected initially because the thought was that, you know, if your foreign effective rate was above the 13.125%, there wouldn't be an incremental U.S. cost, but because of the expense allocation, that certainly can be the case. And so you also have FDII kind of floating off to the right as another part of the expense allocation exercise. We'll get to that topic. But as I said, this is meant to sort of lay the groundwork, show a common scenario that we're seeing with clients in terms of the impact that this basketing issue can have. 
So moving on to the next slide, um, what are taxpayers needing to look at or what should they be thinking about in terms of this potential outcome of excess credits and guilty excess limitation possibly in the general basket. There are many things within the structure, within the operating model of companies that, that they should be looking at because they, they could impact these outcomes. And so one thing that, for example, would be key is looking at the um, payments between the U.S. and CFCs, um, looking at transfer pricing rules, making sure that the payments are the appropriate amounts, and just thinking about how those intercompany relationships might alter potentially the result of which basket you have income in. Um, another thing that would be key would be just overall placement of debt globally, um, whether it be in the U.S. or offshore. That could be external or internal debt. And one of the things that we'll get into a little bit later is looking at hybrid rules, you know, the U.S. as well as foreign, and thinking about what needs to be done with those structures as well. Because the other component with guilty that, that can cause credits to be excess and not utilized is just your overall foreign rate. So just taking a look at, at your foreign taxes, um, thinking about reducing them, anything to sort of manage that rate to the 13.125% or lower will certainly impact your outcomes with guilty. Now, again, the point I made earlier, and at, at the bottom of the slide, we say, you know, foreign ETR of 13.125 or lower, question mark, that kind of goes back to this point that, you know, that there there is some debate as to whether the intention was that that position leaves you with no incremental guilty cost um, versus in the case of expenses having to be allocated. That may not actually be the result. So segueing into the next slide and getting into the topic a bit of expense allocation, um, you know, Treasury has acknowledged publicly that they think that um, expenses should be allocated. You know, guilty, it has its own basket. 904 rules were modified to, to provide a separate basket for guilty. And therefore, because it is an operative provision, we think, and, and Treasury indicates that they agree that there should be normal expense allocation and apportionment as you would with any other basket um, in your foreign tax credit calculation. So what companies will need to do is look very closely at all these allocations. One of the challenges is, as of right now, we don't have guidance to necessarily tell us how to do that. And one of the areas that is particularly difficult is interest apportionment and how that would be done. The fair market value approach was eliminated in the new legislation. And so companies must look at CFC stock basis to do that allocation of interest expense. And so the question now arises with guilty in the mix, how, how do you do that? How do you identify income or assets? What methods should you use? And a big question underlying all that is how to treat PTI, especially now with lots of PTI in the system because of the toll charge, because of um, guilty, et cetera. There are some different, uh, I think, debates going on around what is the, the right methodology, but it's a complicated area with uncertainty. We do expect we will get guidance at some point, but you know that is certainly um, something that will have a big impact on the guilty uh, calculation. And then the other things you would typically think about stewardship, weather, and how that would get apportioned to guilty. And then R&D, you know, that's an area where I think, again, there's some debate as to whether R&D gets allocated, and if so, how, because certainly the different methods could have a very different impact, not just on guilty, but as we'll get into, Marco, on FDII as well. So something to consider, 
as you're doing these allocations, you know, there is certainly an impact if you allocate something too guilty, you have to think, or away from it, you have to think about what's the impact to FDII, because as we said before, you know, FDII has an expense allocation component uh, to it as well. Yeah, I would just say on these couple of comments, one, um, it's interesting sitting here in DC and seeing where the policy impacts the reality sometimes. And I'm not sure from a policy standpoint, people understood how much the expense allocation could impact yeah. the numbers here. And one of the great examples that I see in that, that is um, there was a Wall Street Journal article a few weeks ago, um, won't name the company in here, but, but it was a company that was largely domestic with mm -hmm. just Mexican operations, um, paying US tax and Mexico not being a low tax country yet they had a pretty substantial guilty inclusion just by the way the expense allocations rules work. I, I, I just can't see that that was the intent from a policy standpoint, but to your point, I, I don't see a different outcome being a possibility because, again, I, I do think the, the natural tendency here is going to be to go through the expense allocations, which is going to produce a result that's right. very different than that 13% result. Yeah, the, uh, m most taxpayers have a foreign rate above 13%, so I think many did not think guilty would really impact them. Um, interest expenses is, is really difficult because it's uh, most people borrow here yeah. with rates as they are and banking relationships and uh, the capital here. Um, but it, there's a lot of companies with big R&D expense, so R&D can really bite you on guilty as well. So it's until we get guidance, um, we think some reasonable approach to expense apportionment to guilty is, is probably necessary. Yeah, and I guess my other question for you, um, either one of you can respond to this. What are we telling clients in this space? So we're obviously waiting for regs and some clarity to come out, but people are trying to run some numbers right now and get behind what the implications of this. What are we telling people as far as assumptions? Well, we're doing a lot of modeling yeah. with a lot of various alternatives. Um, we're talking to Treasury. Treasury's asked for uh, you know examples or methodologies that might make sense. Uh, they are they're aware of the issue. Um, but the best thing people can do is, is really look at um, enumerated methods that are currently in the regulations, uh, try those as base cases, and then maybe run models with some variations. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think everyone feels that the 861 rules are sort of our, our best guidance, as Mike indicated, and, yeah. and using those rules, looking at different positions, different scenarios, and, and ultimately, you know, trying to take a conservative approach where you can, since there are some unknowns out there. But Yeah, and to the point you're making, uh, or we made on this Rubik's Cube comment, it's run in multiple scenarios of the same calculation based upon right. different variables. Do you want to maybe help us better understand how FDII fits into the overall foreign tax credit limitation calculations? Right. right. Yeah, it is a question that comes up. I think it initially can be a little bit confusing because FDII, as I know Marco will get into, is targeted. It's, it's a deduction for certain types associated with certain types of income um, that I think the initial inclination is that you think of it as foreign source income because things like royalties for IP in the U.S. that are used outside the U.S. typically would be thought of as foreign deduction eligible income. But what is tricky about that is that the FDII rules are not sourcing rules and FDII is not a basket. So there very well could be income that is treated as foreign deduction foreign-derived deduction-eligible income that's U.S. source income. So FDII, there's expense allocation to it, but it really could be in your U.S. basket 
or it could be in a foreign basket depending on what, what it relates to. So for example, sales of product that go outside the U.S., you know, that would qualify, those could be U.S. source or foreign source depending on, on where title passes. So it's just an area where not to be confused with actually a foreign tax credit basket. It's a separate calculation, but there is an interplay because of the expense allocation rules. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can jump into uh, the Section 250 deduction and the interaction yeah. with uh, yeah. 163J. Yeah, so a couple more topics on guilty and some interplays with other provisions of note. So um, the 163J limitation um, is based on taxable income, but there is also a limitation under Section 250 uh, for FDII and guilty that is limited to taxable income, and it's just not clear under the rules what the ordering is and applying those limitations. So we have heard that Treasury intends to give some guidance, guidance there. So um, I think under the current rules, there's a thought that you could read them to say that because 163J does not tell you to exclude 250 when you do the um, limitation calculation, that that is really the answer under the rules as written. But um, again, it's not entirely clear, and we do hope to get guidance on that. Okay. And then last but not least on guilty, um, there are some interesting potential interplays uh, between the guilty computation of tested income and sections 163J uh, and 267 cap A. And so um, we highlight these. Again, it's another area where there's some uncertainty around it. But in looking at the rules and and how you compute guilty, you start with a CFC's tested income. And that is not an EMP concept, as one might initially think. That is actually defined as gross income, less deductions. And as noted on the slide under the 952 regs, um, there are some exclusions, but it does not include either of the provisions I just mentioned. So there is some thought that 163J, the interest limitation, could and may apply at the CFC level. So if that were to happen, you could have situations, and and I'll give an example. It's common to have uh, debt at a CFC that may be a holding company. It may have no other income. It just has subsidiaries that pay dividends. For purposes of computing the limitation under 163J, you would not include dividend income in that taxable income calculation. So you could end up with probably an unintended consequence of there being non-deductible interest at that holding company CFC because you can't count the dividends in that income. So there could be some surprising results if 163J in, in fact implies at the CFC level. And then the other area of interest is 267 cap A. And those are the hybrid rules that limit deductions for interest and royalties uh, between CFCs where there's hybridity in the arrangement. So either a hybrid instrument or a hybrid entity. And again, if those were to in fact apply at the CFC level, you could end up in a situation where you're denied the deduction at one CFC. The problem is it doesn't impact the income at the recipient CFC and that income would go in your guilty calculation. So another area to just look out for that, you know, that is how these rules could potentially apply and could, you know, produce some unexpected results. I think the last kind of area of interest on this topic is we think there's a that, that the provisions in 267 Cap A could be read to also possibly impact payments that are subject to the FDII deduction as well. 
Um, it's a little bit unclear was it, what was intended, and there is some pretty broad authority for Treasury to write regulations in that case, but it remains to be seen whether that's a situation that ultimately you know, really poses a problem or if because the incomes may be taxed under guilty, there might be some relief there. So just some, you know, probably unexpected results. And it's worth, you know, looking through the structure to try to see if you might have those situations. So the, the crazy result with 267 cap A is you end up with more guilty income because your deduction's denied, but right. your receipt is taxed. Uh, and that can then also increase your beat, which we're going to cover. Yeah. So it's really... Just continues to circle around, okay? (laughs) Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. (laughs) 